Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is Lance Richardson, who joins me to discuss his book, House of Nutter, The Rebel Tailor of Savile Row. Lance is an Australian writer based in America, who's written for The Guardian, The Atlantic and The New Yorker. Lance's book tells the story of Tommy Nutter, the visionary Savile Row tailor who dressed Mick Jagger, Elton John and, of course, the Beatles. In fact, John Paul and Ringo's suits on the Abbey Road cover were all designed by Tommy. Lance's book also tells the story of David Nutter, Tommy's brother. David was a similarly exuberant character and a brilliant photographer. He ended up taking pictures at the wedding of a certain John and Yoko. Lance Richardson, hello. Welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So we're here to talk about House of Nutter, the rebel tailor of Savile Row, a book which was published three or four years ago now. So we're especially grateful that you've gone back in time to, to talk to us about it. An obvious first question, what was the attraction to talk about and to tell Tommy's story? So I, I didn't know anything about Tommy. A, a, a friend of mine found out about him and we were just having a conversation in London once when I was visiting and she told me this, this kind of story about this, you know, unusual tailor who had lived this very uh, excess life and known all of these people. And, uh, you know, I kind of remember the anecdote she told me then, which was quite a few years ago, but it just piqued my interest. And I, I was sort of drawn to the idea of this guy who, uh, you know, was not known to me, obviously he's known to a lot of other people, but who, who sort of lived on the periphery of all of these sort of superstars and observed them and, and sort of had his kind of life parallel with them. I've always been really drawn to people who, you know, dwell in the wings uh, and, you know, that idea of like the, the actors on the stage, but then the people sort of off to the side also have really interesting stories. So I was kind of, you know, it started there and I just looked into him. I didn't know anything about his brother when I started uh, and it sort of just unfurled from that point. It's as much David, Tommy's brother's story as, as Tommy's really. When did you realise it was going to be almost a twin biography? Well, it was a shock. I didn't sell the book as a twin biography. Um, I didn't even sell it as a biography. I, I, I really sort of wanted to push against that because, you know, in my head, and it's ironic because I'm now writing a, a giant 800-page biography, but uh, <laughs> at the time, all the biographies I had read, while excellent, tended to be, you know, quite stolid, academic, uh, and I really wanted to write something that was more like a narrative nonfiction book that would sort of gallop along. Uh, so it wasn't really sold as a biography and it sort of became more of one as I wrote it. But it also wasn't sold as a jewel, as you say, because I didn't know anything about David other than that he existed. And what happened is I tracked him down on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn managed to actually have a purpose. I was quite, quite amazed. And I found him in New York where I was living at the time. And it turned out that he only lived a few blocks from me. So I, I sent him a message and we met up in a, a cafe you know, he's, he was in his sort of, I guess, mid-70s then. And he, he walked in and he looked kind of homeless. Like he was, a, you know, pretty, pretty shabby and had, dragging a plastic bag around. And I was like, my God, who is this man? <laughs> um, and he sat down and that first meeting, I remember, was chaotic because his memories were very, uh, shat not shattered, but just like shards of memories. So he would tell, he was sort of telling me all these things and mentioning, you know, Yoko and, you know, all these people by their first names. And, and I was sort of 
bewildered. Uh, but then he started to pull photographs out of that, that paper, that plastic bag, uh, and they were amazing. And over subsequent meetings, it became clear to me that, that his life was just as fascinating as his brothers and sort of explored, I guess, adjacent fields like photography and, and also, you know, he was very much in New York because David moved to New York in 71. So by writing about both of the brothers who were both gay as well, I could write about these different fields that were sort of, you know, connected to each other, but also these two cities. Um, so it just be, it was a really organic process and, and just became about both of them. So the childhood, Tommy and David's childhood that you write about in the book, their father, quite a conventional kind of character, sort of a world away from the the world that they would go on to inhabit tell us a little bit about about their childhood and how that conventional background led to tommy taking up tailoring yeah so so they they grew up in edgeware as you say their their father was was quite conventional uh, i i guess you know being australian i would say he was a bit of a bloke um <laughs> uh not 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 very creative not very sort of original or didn't think outside the box, was quite happy to, you know, have his pint, run his cafe. He, he owned a little, uh, one of those little cafes that that basically just sold tea out of a big urn to the, the local uh, workers. And he was married to Dolly, their mother, who was, I guess, you know, hampered by her circumstances, but actually did have that spark, was creative, was, was an original and, and a really interesting woman. I imagine they got a lot of their their creativity from her, and and that's sort of very much what what David said to me. But they were they were growing up in you know here we are in the, the sort of the forties and the fifties, the austerity Britain, and it it was a pretty stifling place to be. And they found solace in the West End in musicals, which in those days were much more affordable. They could you know pay virtually nothing, go and and stand up the back. Uh, and also the cinema, which there was a cinema down the road. Um, so they, they really found an escape in, you know, Hollywood and glamour, of the glamour of musicals. And that became a real haven for both of them and magazines as well. So, so just, you know, escapism in that way. Uh, and, then, and then it came time to get a job, uh, move out into the world. And, and they really wanted um, both of them to, you know, get normal, respectable jobs and, Tommy really was not into that. And he found a, a, a sort of very entry-level position for a tailor on Savile Row. Basically, he, he would sort of just run the material from the, the main shop to uh, the workers who at that time were all in Soho in various places. And he would sort of run in between. And he started there. He started at the bottom and, and just, you know, had that creative spark that he wanted to do more than, than than his lot sort of would have had him do. Now, the point in the book where my eyes lit up, and I'm sure many of my listeners will be intrigued to know about, is Tommy finds himself having dinner with a certain Mr. Brian Epstein um, in the, the summer of 1967 at, at Brian's house. I mean, that that's a quite a unique dinner table to be sat around tell us how he went from from you know that that quite lowly position in a Savile Row tailor to be having dinner with the the Beatles manager I wish I could I, I no one knows I, it, it, he you know he's one of those people who managed to ingratiate himself into into crowds that you wouldn't 
today. I mean, it's you think about trying to imagine the equivalent of this. You're a nobody, and you go and have you go and have dinner with like you two. I, I, what is the equivalent today? There isn't one. There isn't a band that is as gigantic as the Beatles would have been at that point. So he just turned up. The way that Peter told me is that he just came with somebody. He was the date, and just happened to be there, and that he caught Peter's eye. Didn't really catch Brian's eye. He wasn't really Brian's type. But but Brian sort of encouraged Peter to pursue that. But but of course, other circumstances and, and things came up first, um, which we can talk about. But uh, it, it really it was just one of those mysteries of Tommy and like how he got into this place, but just found himself that summer having Brian's house yeah, at a dinner table with the manager of the Beatles, as you do. As you do, yes, absolutely. Certainly in 1967 London, I think. So you mentioned Peter Peter Brown there, who most of the listeners will know was heavily involved in the Beatles organisation for a, a number of years. And, and he and Tommy struck up a, a, a relationship, quite a long relationship, um, from what I can gather yeah. from, from the book. So you mentioned to me kind of previous to this that you were lucky enough to speak to Peter a few times. Tell us a little bit about how he and Tommy kind of got together. And what kind of relationship did they have? The way they got together was kind of amazed me when Peter told me about it because, I mean, obviously Brian died and it was a pretty awful situation in which he died. So we talked about that and it was really in the aftermath of that, in the shock of, of Brian's sudden unexpected death. So so Peter was in, in Brian's flat, if I'm remembering correctly, and the phone rang and it was Tommy and Tommy said, do you need me to come around? And Peter said, yes. And that's how it started. So it was just, you know, a pretty unusual way to start a relationship. But um, there, there you are. It's, it's, it's also just another example of that sort of unusual thing about Tommy where to put himself out there in that way is, is sort of really says something about him. But yeah, it really started in the, the aftermath of, of Brian's sudden death and kind of grew from there. Uh, and they, they were together until, until really until Peter moved to New York in, in 71. So yeah, it was, it was a few years, but it was a pretty rocky relationship and, and not a conventional one by any means. So obviously that led to Tommy being around the Beatles. There's a, an excellent story in the book that I'd love it if you could share with us involving a certain song called Hey Jude. Tommy gets a, a preview of that, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, well, that song is, yeah, here's another one of those stories. I just couldn't believe it when I was being told. So, you know, that they, they write this song, which, you know, as, as most of your listeners would know, was so unusual and groundbreaking at the time that they weren't even sure how it was going to be received because it was so damn long and, and so unusual in its structure. So they, they recorded it and they, they called up Peter, who was in the office on Savile Row, and they asked him to come around and... Uh, so he walked over because the, the recording studio they did that wasn't far from there. And they sat him down in a chair. This is the way that Peter told me anyway. And they sat, it down, sat him down in a chair and they put you know, the headphones on and they played the song, the full seven minutes. And then he took off his headphones and they, they sort of, they said, so what do you think? And, you know, Peter said that they were really unsure about you. You think of these guys as being, you know, they, they were just so, so, so genius at what they were doing that they, they could never be, surely they were never like insecure about their work, but they, they apparently really were. And, and sort of Peter was 
you know, rapturous because of it's Hey Jude. I mean, my God. Um, so, so he was, you know, just like, wow, this, this is, this is an incredible song. And they were all celebrating that they had made this thing. And then they wanted to go out and celebrate properly. And, and, and Peter was actually scheduled to go out into the countryside on a trip with Tommy. And he goes and calls up Tommy and says, you know, let, let's, let's, you know, do this. And Tommy is really resistant and doesn't want to do it um, and wants to sort of stick to their plans. You know, what ends up happening is the Beatles get on the phone and basically are like, no, you have to come. You have to come and celebrate with us and come and hear it. And you can't, you can't really say no to Paul. So, you know, Tommy, Tommy comes into the studio and the same, same setup. They sit him down in the chair and they put the headphones on him and he listens to it totally stone-faced. And at the end, he, they, he takes the headphones off and he, he says very deadpan that he didn't care for it. He didn't think it was very good. And they were just crestfallen, uh, is, is what Peter told me, um, just stunned that, you know, he was their first, I guess, their first listener outside of the, the family of the, the Beatles, as it were. And uh, he didn't like the song. And, and there was this sort of moment of silence. And then Peter sort of says, oh, he's bloody joking, because that was Tommy's sense of humour, this, this very, you know, flat affect that especially if he was sort of sulking as he was in that situation, he would be, he could get very, you know, catty. So he was joking because, of course, you know, it's, it's Hey Jude. How could you hate Hey Jude? If someone hates Hey Jude, you should not be friends with that person because that's, that's crazy. Sound advice. Sound advice there. Now, a year after that comes another Beatle-related point in the book, uh, parallel to Tommy's burgeoning career on Savile Row. Tommy's brother, David, is becoming a photographer. And as I was, mm. as I was flicking through the book, who should I see posing next to, to David but uh, a heavily bearded John Lennon whilst they were on uh, their trip to Gibraltar for John's wedding to marriage to Yoko, of course. Uh, again, another crazy situation. Uh, as you said at the start there, it must have been very odd when, when David mentioned to you in passing, oh, I was at John and Yoko's wedding. Tell us a little bit about how he ended up there and what his kind of memories of being there were. This is, this is just also a really a kind of a testament to the times, right? And how and how sort of home, not homemade, but kind of homemade things would have been back then, or were back then. Because you know, you think about it today, and how photographers and these big rock stars work. How how sort of everything is would be so organized and so like PR and media and like publicity departments and everything. Everything's very micromanaged. Mm. And, and back then, it really was kind of slapdash or haphazard. Uh, and, and sort of you could have these sort of magical moments of serendipity because things weren't like they are now where everything's sort of so corporate. So, so what happened is, is Tommy, uh, Tommy was doing his tailoring thing. And at the same time, as you say, David was emerging as a photographer. He was doing a lot of work for Oz magazine um, and was sort of involved in that whole, you know, massive uh, obscenity trial that happened around that time as well. And he had a studio in Primrose Hill David had taken a lot of photos that were, um, you know, of people that they knew and, uh, and, and Peter had become aware of these and he needed somebody to jump in uh, at the last minute for this, you know, top secret thing that was happening. Uh, and, and John and Yoko did not really want any publicity. They didn't want it to get out. They, they also just wanted to get it over and done with. So, so Peter basically grabbed David and said, can you get 
to Gibraltar here at this time. Don't ask any questions. And, and, and you know, David just went along with it because that David, his entire life has just gone along with things. That's what he does. So, you know, he, he finds himself flying to Gibraltar. He gets off the plane and is, is finds himself part of this legendary iconic wedding and takes the photos, which are, you know, beautiful and were subsequently stolen. So the photos that you see in the book actually are scanned from the wedding album that, that John Yoko did uh, because the original negatives ha- have gone missing. They were stolen from David. Um, it's one of the, the low points of his life. Uh, but he, it was just a very kind of a surprising circumstances to find himself in. And, and my favorite photos from that wedding actually are the ones on the, the trip back uh, and they're all goofing around on, on the plane, on the jet that they had. And there's this sort of really charming pictures of, you know, them, them sitting on the, the plane and kind of all grouped together. And, and they get back to London and David has no money. He can't get home. So he, act, he ends up having to get a lift with the pilot back into the city because he's so disorganized, which is you know, a, a running theme of his life, that he couldn't even get, get home after, after doing the, the wedding of John and Yoko. Uh, so that, that same year, the iconic picture of the four Beatles crossing the Abbey Road zebra crossing, maybe the one of the most famous album covers ever taken, dare I, mm-hmm. dare I, dare I suggest. Uh, and of course, three of those Beatles are wearing none other than Tommy Nutter's suits on, on that cover. Um, two questions around that. Do you know how he felt about that? Was that something that was a big deal for him or was he the kind of person that would not have taken that, had any great interest in that? Um, and were the Beatles always fans of his tailoring in his suits? So, I mean, I, I'll answer the second question first. I think, you know, from what Peter said, I mean, they would have been fans to wear them. I mean, absolutely, yeah. you're not going to wear something you don't like. But it wasn't sort of planned out in, in any sense of like, you know, we're going to go to the shop and get it. it You've got to remember that that Nutters was across the road from, from Applecore and it was Peter's boyfriend's thing. And they knew about the suits because Peter was wearing the suits himself. And if you actually, if you watch that movie, Let It Be, you can see there's a part in it where, at the very, you know, the, the the climax where they're all performing on the roof, and the doorman is comes lets the police in, and the doorman's actually wearing a coat that is a nutter's coat, and it, that's probably the one of the first things that he would have made for any of the people around the Beatles, I guess. Um, so I don't think it was a case of like, they all decided to go there. It was just that they, they happened to have these clothes because it was convenient and because they knew him and they liked his style. And I mean, the, the thing I love about that cover is, you know, aside from the composition and everything is just how unplanned it was in a way, you know, they were just recording and they went outside and they did this thing and they were just wearing what they were wearing, which is why they don't match. Today, as I said before, you're not gonna get this. You're gonna get people that have designed, thought about it. They've worked out what people are gonna wear. It's all very planned. And, and to some extent, you know, it just seems so spontaneous and lovely that they all just happen to be wearing Tommy's clothes, except of course for, for George in his jeans. But so, so you know, that, that, that aspect of it is, is wonderful. And, and Tommy, of course, loved it. And so did Edward. Uh, you know the the, the the cutter who had had made the clothes, and they thought it was wonderful. How it was just free publicity. My God, it's huge. And that also was, you know, here we are, nineteen sixty nine. This was the first year of the the Nutter shop being open. This is 
it, it was such a whirlwind to go from from unknowns and nothing to you know having your clothes on the cover probably the most famous album cover of all time right certainly so you you listed the book that in 1970 people like Peter Sellers, Patty Boyd, Lionel Barr, even Nancy Reagan were all donning outfits, uh, suits, clothing that, that Tommy's designed. Now, I, I listened to a, another podcast interview that you did and you were very careful to make plain that you were not a fashion journalist. Uh, so <laughs> I'll, I'll pre-see that question with that. But, I mean, obviously his, his clothing was remarkably successful, as you say, to, for these people to, to wear it. What was the key to Tommy's success, do you think? Well, I think... He, you've got to remember at the time, most suits were pretty boring and, and, and sort of very conventional. And then you have this guy who comes along, you, you really had two choices. You either would go and shop in sort of the King's Road and sort of, you know, wear those sort of pretty out there, the, the mod stuff, or you would wear what Savile Row was peddling, which was very kind of dull, beautiful, beautifully made, but, but just not very interesting. And, and Tommy comes along and he, he really kind of fuses those two worlds together. And then that sort of, I guess the mod sensibility or even more than mod, just, just that sort of like playful, fun, um, slightly queer, there's sort of a campness about his clothes and the exaggeratedness of them, but also just, just absolutely perfectly made. All the clothes of his that I've touched and examined in the last sort of, you know, few years when I was making this, they all are still just flawless. They're perfect. So it was a real opportunity for these people who had money and had taste and wanted good clothes to, to wear something that was more interesting. And, you know, that, that really kind of made them stand out. And his clothes certainly did that. I mean, if, if you've, if the listeners, if you've ever seen a Tommy Nutter suit, my God, it's the, the lapels touch, touch the shoulders and the waist is very kind of cinched and then it flares out and it's all very tight. You basically wouldn't have been able to put anything in your pockets because it would have been so tight. Uh, it's just just very kind of distinctive silhouette that he was selling that I think people were excited to see. There was sort of innovation happening in this field that for a long time had been very calcified. Flipping forward in time and flipping over to David's story again, there's a, a wonderful part of the book which tells a story that I was completely unaware of where David, as you said, moves to New York in 1971. And then in 1975, he is contacted by Yoko Ono, who asked him to come to the Dakota and take some pictures. And there's a, 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 one of the pictures is in the book, uh, which, which you can describe to, to listeners, which I found quite a haunting, almost eerie picture. Maybe that's just my own interpretation of it. Tell us a little bit about why and how David got that call and what happened when he went into the Dakota that day? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a bit of a backstory to that because obviously he'd shot their wedding and become friendly with them on, on the plane on the way back. And that wasn't the end of their, their working relationship that year, back in the, back in 69. There's also some pictures in the book of other things that they had done you know, David was was there photographing them when they were doing their album. When they're you know you know they're laying on the ground with with stethoscopes, uh, and David took photos of that. And then he would take them back to his uh, studio. And there's an amazing photo, probably my favorite photo that he ever took, where he spliced a picture of them laying on the ground when they were doing the stethoscope stuff, and he spliced it onto a picture of uh, it's actually Primrose Hill, but it's almost silhouetted. 
Uh, and it looks like John and Yoko are floating in the clouds over London. And he, he made that by, you know, the days before Photoshop by splicing these photos together. Um, so he was doing stuff with them back then. And he also, when John was in his car accident and got an X-ray, he somehow got this X-ray from John and then did like photographs of, he, he, at one point, John was going to release another book with Penguin that never worked out. So, so David shot a cover for that, but then he had this sort of very, very face-on portrait and he also had the X-ray. So he took the face-on portrait and spliced the, the glasses that John was wearing on that onto the, the skull. And it's a very haunting image of John Lennon's skull wearing, you know, his very famous spectacles. Hmm. So he, he had really kind of worked with them before and they knew who he was. Uh, and then, you know, as you say, in 75 after... They, they'd sort of all decamped to New York. But, you know, this is just, this is another one of those things where David really didn't know what was going on. He was just sort of asked to do something and just did it. I assume that that Yoko had some project in mind, which never really came to fruition or it went in a different direction, but she had a mannequin of herself and it looks like Yoko, it's quite spooky and it's got like the long black hair. And she she asked him to just come around to the their famous palatial apartment in the Dakota building on the Upper West Side uh, and just take some photographs of the of this mannequin in the apartment. And so David rocks up with his camera and just has this mannequin and, and takes it around the apartment. And I only, I think I only put like one or two pictures in the book, but I've seen them all. They're crazy. There's like, here's Yoko Ono, a naked mannequin of Yoko Ono, like bending in the fridge and also like, bending over a toilet bowl because she's had a big night. Apparently it was the story I was told and, and doing yoga and with like praising the sky and there's a telephone in her lap. And I think the one that's in the book is she's, she's sort of hunched over a piano and pressing a key. And this is really strange images. And it's so good that I, I blew one up. One's on my wall in my apartment. And, and he just took all these photographs and then she never got them off him and they just languished in a drawer after he developed them for like 50 something years till whatever it is until I came along and um, he showed them to me and and now they at least are out in the world or at least one of them is out in the world, but they're, they're really striking images and, and quite strange. But I mean, what's not strange when it's Yoko Ono involved? Wonderfully strange. Wonderfully strange. From the conversations that you had with him, did he have a lot of affection for John and Yoko or were they just other people that he worked with? Or No, I think he really liked them. He thought they were wonderful. But I mean, something that's really kind of striking about both of the Nutter brothers is neither of them were really ever starstruck. They didn't get that sort of like, oh, you know, the John and Yoko are in like a different, different realm from us. They were just other people. Uh, that just happened to be quite interesting and fun to hang around. So you talk to David and there's never a, never a star. I won't use that word, but the, 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 you know what I'm saying? There's, there's none of that. So for him, they were just interesting people who got him to do strange things and he was up for it, but he just liked them. He really, he did really like John. And I know that the assassination really rattled him because he was also living just up the road at the time. So after the, 60s kind of move into the 70s uh, we should talk a bit about about Tommy the brand Tommy Nutter and Nutters of Savile Row really kind of hit its stride in 71 72 73 so I think he'd be more as an early 70s designer and and he would have probably gone on to have continued success with them but he there was internal problems with you know his business partners uh and it's all very kind of elaborate 
people are interested in it, they can read the book um, to get the mm. details. But basically the, the, the shop collapsed in 76 and then Tommy, you know, bounced between other tailors and, and, and then ended up getting his own shop again in the 80s and came back with a very different design, very 80s, like giant shoulders. Uh, but unlike, you know, Armani at that time, who's doing very soft clothes, very sort of like almost like cardigans, Tommy was doing, his clothes were very like armor, it was like wearing a suit of armor. So, so he did kind of have a long career until, you know, he, he contracted HIV and probably died in, in 1992. So he did sort of go on, but he, the height of his fame was really, you know, the early 70s. I mean, I found as I, as I read the book that it was, it was fascinating because there were so many elements that, that came into it. It's about fashion. It's about London, um, the, as you say, the, the 60s into the 70s. Uh, and, and then quite heart-wrenchingly, almost, the, the AIDS crisis uh, and, and kind of queer issues. I mean, if you could talk a little bit about that, what was it that was most striking about Tommy's life that, that kind of came out at you when you were, when you were writing the book? Well, for me personally, the, you know, as you said before, I'm not a fashion journalist. I, I, I like the clothes. I think they're really wonderful. And I, I you know, I, I worked very hard to, to talk about them in a way that was, you know, intelligent and sophisticated. But for me, the, the thing that really jumped out at me was aside from well, one, one part was the idea that, that these, these brothers really were in the wings of these famous people. And by, by talking about their lives, you could kind of come at you know, people like the Beatles and and Elton John from a different angle. Uh, that that drew me to it. But also the fact that both of the brothers were gay. And for me, to to be able to write about them, I realized quite early is was a way of being able to write about four or five decades of gay history in these two very important cities. And they, they were there at all these iconic moments, but they also drifted through all of these eras. You had like you know, they were they were growing up in an era where it was still criminalized, and then they were teenagers uh, when it was decriminalized, and and sort of in their early twenties, and then and then this sort of went through the flourishing, and then you had obviously the AIDS crisis. So so by writing about their lives, I could also write about the rapidly changing face of of the LGBTQ movement and the, the community and what it meant to be around in, in London and New York for those decades. And I, that, that was just really exciting to me. Comes across beautifully in the, in the book. Lance, it's been a really fun and, and interesting chat. I would recommend this book to all of my Beatle listeners and beyond. There's a, a huge wealth of eye-opening stories and interesting facts in there. So I'll end by saying, Lance, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.